Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm sitting here for the fourth time on the podcast, and a fifth time if you count the best of episode, with my dear friend and confidant. And uh, he once yelled at me for saying he was a mentor, but I would say this, it's we coach one another, and it's one of the great joys of my life. And uh, even if I still think I learn more from Seth, but uh, I'm really happy to have you. We're in your office, Seth. You know that, but they don't. True. So, Different acoustics here. Thanks for having me here and for being here on the moment. It's a highlight. It, I measure time by how many days in between. That's returning awesome. Returning to the podcast. You are the best. Um, so. We're just going to have a conversation as we do. You and I have no notes in front of me, though. I've been thinking about this conversation for a long time. And I know you've been thinking about some stuff, too. And, and what I was thinking about this past week, I've been thinking about excellence and what that standard means and how it's sometimes a crippling standard. Oh, yeah. But, but also a worthy one. And... And I've been thinking about ambition as it relates to that and how, how challenging it is to, how, how complicated our relationships to ambition are and how some are able to harness it or define it differently in order to produce work without being crippled by this idea of excellence and then end up at excellent work. And so that's what I wanted to begin by talking to you about or asking you about all right that's only gonna take two or three hours there's a lot of nuance go i don't have to speak again (laughs) excellence uh first popularized by tom peters 33 years ago a book in search of excellence it created the industry that i'm in it was the first business book that was a huge bestseller the idea of excellence is controversial and confusing because of henry ford and what happened even for people who are listening to this who are 20 or 30 years old, what happened is there's a huge overhang. And the overhang is this. Almost anything that can be produced can be produced so much cheaper and so much better than it was for our grandparents that it's astonishing. The biggest change in the history of mankind. You can buy a pair of eyeglasses or a sweatshirt or a car for nothing compared to what it used to cost. How did we get there? How did we create the ability to do that? The answer is an obsession with management and doing what we are told. And part of management is this measure of quality. And quality is, does it meet spec? Not is it deluxe, but does it meet spec? So we create these institutions where we go to get an A, to get an SAT score, to get a job at the placement office, to get hired, to sit in an office, to do the equivalent of making a car. And the problem is we don't have to get better at it. And no one who's listening to this is ever going to be the cheapest at doing it. Right. Well, they, right. They, they can't be. But, but also, uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that it leads to a deep sense of satisfaction. That's right. For anybody in it the equation. for the sucks our humanity. For, for the, the person generating that work and right. the person receiving that exactly. work. Exactly. And so in a few minutes, we'll talk about wabi-sabi. But before I get to wabi-sabi, there's this idea that has been drilled into us from the time we were four, 
that what we're supposed to do is ask if it's going to be on the test. And if it's going to be on the test, we should memorize it and do it to spec. Why do we have that idea? It was invented by industrialists, taught to us from an early age so that they could get better employees. So now let's talk about excellence. But go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it, it, a couple things occur to me with, with, the, with the problem. There's the obvious thing, which is if you're only preparing for the test, you're ignoring all this other stuff. Right. But the other, I think, even bigger problem is if you're not the kind of person who's great at preparing for a test, you feel like there's no place for you. Right. And like you're destined to fail. Right. Exactly. So we end up creating these capitalist lifestyles where we feel inadequate because we don't have enough stuff. We feel inadequate because we're not good at the test. We feel inadequate because the boss wants us to work harder or cheaper and because we can never get to Six Sigma perfect. So Tom and Bob write this book, In Search of Excellence, which isn't about anything I just said. What it's actually about is be a human. That organizations that are excellent, and I talked to Tom about this two days ago, and he confirmed that I had nailed a short version of this, is... How would you do the work if you actually cared about it? You're talking about uh, excellence as a stand-in for the idea of some kind of inner standard. Yes. It's an inner standard that says, my job is not to make it just like it was made yesterday. My job is to see the person for whom I am making this for, imagining them, and saying, if I cared, what would I do? And the reason this is a breakthrough it's because we are now in a post-quality era. We're in an era where robots and AI and cheap labor are making things to higher quality standards than most of us can. So what's our value add? Our value add is invent a TV pilot no one's ever thought of before. Give customer service that's above and beyond. Decide you're not going to ship a product even though you can get away with it because it sucks. All of these choices that we make as humans are what make an organization or a person excellent. The, the challenging thing is that the, um, those things all seem like miracles. Yeah. When, when you're in receipt of them. Right. And as you said, because we're in, uh, what did you call it, post-quality age, where we're basically, yes, uh, 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 what we expect out of things is so high and what we take for granted um, is so deep that when something like, uh, Mad Men comes along, for instance. For me, the greatest television show of all time, along with The Sopranos. But and billions, I, the big th three. No, thank you. But what I, the, I, what I, I see though, before I wrote, before David and and I uh, wrote Billions, is that it seemed like a miracle that uh, Mad Men, impossible to achieve, and and this idea of if I cared, what would I do? I spent years caring so deeply that I couldn't do anything, right? I cared so deeply about trying to be excellent, trying to live up to uh, an inner standard that I, I was crippled. If you hadn't done that, you never could have written billions. That it's a mistake to, com to extend or compress the time horizons here. You don't just get to show up one day and make a TV show. Right. That what happened was all of those years of being a human, of exposing yourself to the right and to the wrong, of writing things that weren't any good, that's part of the journey that lets someone write a madman, that lets someone create a billions. So the idea is the consumer of madmen felt something special was going on. 
the creators of Mad Men felt something was special was going on. I don't think that's what happens at the typical morning talk show where they're just cranking it out and cranking it out. It's their job, right? And so what it means to create an institution that's excellent is not to say to your people, there may be no typos and the sound levels must always be perfect because those are a given, right? Now that those are a given, what it means to be excellent is to be willing to fail in the service of being extraordinary. And it's the failing part that separates leadership from management, that lots of people want to be managers, tell other people what to do, and tell them to do things that you know will work. But leaders, this whole idea of lean, lean organizations, the only thing that means is they fail a lot, that you have lots of big meetings so that no one will get in trouble if you fail, that what it means to be lean is that you're exploring in the market, you're trying out a new way of interacting, whether it's in a script or checking people in for a flight, you know, I, I was, or, go ahead. Yeah. No, it's just, but it's so hard Yeah. to, um, to become comfortable failing. I think about it even personally in terms of dieting, you know, I mean, uh, I come to your house for dinner a lot with my wife and you've seen me go through five, six different failures in the last, even just, the you potato know, diet year and a half. Great, yeah. Though. But, um, here you go. Cookies. And then you just hand me cookies. I take back the whole thing about our friendship. Um, that's so mean. But um, but that's why this idea, that's why I'm so interested lately in, well, you said a few things. that One thing you said just gave me this like, sort of blinding realization. Um, I got, I recently, I got the iPhone 10. And before that, I, uh, I got AirPods when they came out. Yep. And someone recently said to me, a few people didn't I have this road answer, which is true. How's the iPhone 10? Is it worth it? And my answer to that question is, you know, it doesn't give me any special feeling. Right. And it, uh, I said, now the AirPods, which are 10th the price of the X, are amazing to me every time I use them. And it's not, you know, it's not an, it doesn't burn out. I've had them since they were first released. So it's six or eight months of using them all day, every day. Uh -huh. They blow my mind. They're per a perfect item. Everything about the way they make me feel when I take them, they're excellent. They're, I know their sound quality isn't as good as Sennheiser's you put sure. over your head, but for their purpose exactly. to use, use earphones unobtrusively, unobtrusively, um, conveniently, that Bluetooth that just works flawlessly, uh, that stay charged, that sort of take all the problems with Bluetooth out of it. They're, they are amazing to me. But the iPhone X, which, which is actually an astonishing device, that that exists in the world, is yeah. mind-boggling if you allow yourself to think about not just the computational power, but the way it synthesizes information. Oh, the number of brilliant programmers over 40 years that were necessary to bring it to you. And yet, because we live in this age, right? I don't even, I, I don't look at it and consider what, what Ben Franklin would look at and not only think sure. it was a marvel, but would uh, probably reaffirm his faith in yeah. a deity. Right. We've gone from, it's the work of Satan to meh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, the, at, the problem with that or the fear, it's all, this is all about fear and death as all things are. But the problem with that is um, 
in this kind of a world that moves at this speed, a world that causes us to ignore the remarkable or take for granted the miraculous. The thought that we can do something great. Yeah. Feels um, absurd. It's enervating. It's more than absurd. So Viktor Frankl... Uh, enervating, which is the opposite of uh, energizing. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Viktor Frankl apparently pointed out that we have a Statue of Liberty, but we don't have a Statue of Responsibility. Man's Search for Meaning is a great book. You should get it by Viktor Frankl. And that's why it's so frightening. Not that we don't have the liberty to make something unbelievable that will change everything. It's that we don't want the responsibility of trying. So your parable about, but how do I find an agent, is how do I find someone to take some of this responsibility? Because if I had an agent, it's not my fault if my screenplay doesn't sell, it's her fault. And the whole idea that you can publish your own work, make your own video, write your own novel, the idea that you can do your own customer service, put your community service right into the world, is something we don't do because we don't want to fail. And what it means to be a human in a post-quality world is you're on the hook to fail. Go further. Well, when, we, when I share the phrase, here, I made this with people, mm. most people avert their eyes. They don't want to be the person who says, here, I made this. They want to say, here, the kitchen made this. And if you don't like it, I'll tell the manager because then it's not on them. So how do you re how do you rewire? I guess this is what I was getting to with the question of ambition. When we walked in, you said, I said, hey, let's talk about ambition too. And you go, that's, that's like something from your show. But I guess what I mean by ambition as it ties into doing the real work, excellence, is how hard it is to rewire our internal reward system. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, for the two of us, you know, there's something not a feat about having the conversation, but there's something slightly easy about having the conversation, because in the global sense, we've won the war. we have to fight the war every day. But in the global sense, we've won. We also the war. won the birthday lottery. Yes, all yeah. that stuff. We're both fifty year old. 50-year-old white men who grew up at a certain time when it was really easy for, sure. for white men who uh, were willing to like work pretty hard and challenge themselves to come up with good ideas to become successful. But also, we're to someone listening who's working a bunch of jobs yeah, and who's raising a family and who's where we were when we were 22, you know, I felt this incredible internal pressure, as I know you did, to push myself. But I was lucky in so many ways. I didn't have crippling college debt. I had a lot of, oh. I had a lot of great. We were born on the 97 yard line. There's no question. Yeah, I mean, about we went it. to the same college and neither of us had to pay for it. That, that is a huge advantage. Sure. But it's also true that the people who are going to far outstrip us, somebody who's going to far outstrip anything we've accomplished is working three jobs and trying to raise a family and all That's that right. stuff. So how is that idealized version of a person how have they wired their reward structure to be able to try to make the next breakthrough? And, and, and how can we all think about that idea? Reassurance is futile. There's no amount of examples that I can give people that will quiet that noise and point out how it's stacked against them. There's an alternative, which is 
Yeah, it's completely unfair, and it's extraordinarily unlikely that you will hit a home run. Don't do it so you can hit a home run. Do it because being human, even in your spare time, is a fabulous hobby. And if you can approach it as a hobby, not as a life or death thing, if you can approach this act of creativity, of being, even if you're the receptionist at an auto parts store, what would it mean to be the best receptionist? Any, is it How much extra calories do you burn every day to be the best receptionist in history? No extra calories. The thing that's amazing about it is, at the end of the day, you are happier than the person who grumbled their way. Well, this is what Adam Carolla talks about. And, you know, uh, obviously, Adam and I disagree about a bunch of stuff, but about sort of maximizing human performance. He's, he's pretty good. And he, he talks about how uh, you wipe off the weight machine after you use it, not just because you're thinking about the other person, but, but because then you become the kind of person who wipes off the weight machine. Yeah. And it serves you. The, you are just, if you're out there trying to improve what you touch, right. you then end up becoming a person who's improving things everywhere right. that they go. And so we get to two things, this, this idea of a practice and this idea of scarcity. So in terms of a practice, what we know, you and I and lots of people, is that anyone who's a successful creative isn't successful because they win a Grammy Award or make a lot of money. They're successful because they made a piece of work that matched what they sought to do. And so the practice is not, how can I have a top 10 billboard bestseller? The practice is, could I make a record that if I was lucky, would be the one that showed up on the bestseller? Because that's what I'm measuring. But as soon as you hand it off to the marketplace, now you're in a different business. I think this is half true. Please, let's discuss. Uh because yes, the highest of the high feeling is in the creation of something that, as you, exactly as you said it, that it's the, the thing, the Kierkegaard quote at the beginning of one of the Salinger books about how hard it is to make the thing in your head become manifest in a way that it actually rhymes, that it's the same, yeah, that it, exactly. it's almost impossible. So when you do that, I agree with you, it's this incredible high. But wanting to to share the work is i think hardwired in people who do creative i think stuff. it's great to want to share it i'm but, just saying don't criticize the work because the market didn't get the joke but how do you learn yes i so i i agree the idealized human can create the work but if you read van gogh's if you read van gogh's book yeah and let we can it doesn't matter whether he's correct but you read you read um letters to theo which mm -hmm. i know you've read i've not read it uh, Have you read it in the original French? Uh, the original was that what the Dutch? Is that what, the know. Dutch, right? Okay, but but um, no, I haven't, Seth. But I've read, <laughs> uh, but I have read the collected letters. Okay, letters to I'll Theo. check it out. And yeah, you have moments of the guy knowing he saw something, and then painted the thing, and it looked the way that he wanted it to look. But there's also a lot of, am I crazy? And not just because he got to the point where a lot of, am I crazy? A lot of, they don't understand me. A lot of loneliness. Because there is a, a loneliness that's uh, attendant to wanting to share that best part of yourself and it being turned away. And so how do you then 
And the only cure for that is to keep doing the work. Okay, but, you, but how do you get yourself to keep doing right. the work? Well, you and I have disagreed about this, but let me try to give you one anecdote here. Mad Men, the greatest TV show of all time, was seen by one thirtieth the number of people as the Beverly Hillbillies. One thirtieth. So should Matt beat himself up about that? Where's the number at which you get to stop beating yourself up? One thirtieth. Three percent. So I'm not buying that market success or Amazon reviews or cash are appropriate unless you want to tell yourself a story that you can use as fuel or that you can use to depress yourself. But that's not part of this conversation. If we can have a marketing show, I can talk about that. But this is about the narrative of the creator. Yes. So, but the, how do you? So, but this is the so the question baked into this is how do you book? How do you stay undaunted? Right. Well, there's a lot of daunting. One of the there really is. You know, the the Alt MBA is this workshop that I run, and it runs for thirty days. What we do is we put 125 people together in a digital space. They give more feedback than they've ever given in their lives. They get more feedback than they've ever gotten in their lives. And they develop this cycle of putting work in front of people who trust them and support them and vice versa, watching that work be criticized and improved, then improving it themselves and then doing it again. What this does is it starts to wire us to understand that there's two narratives here. There's the narrative of, did I change someone? Did I contribute to someone? And then there's the narrative of, will USA Today write about me on the arts page? Those are completely separate narratives. And every time we conflate them, we're doing it, I believe, for the wrong reason. Other than taking Alt-MBA, which people should do, they should apply and, and try to. I've seen the letters people write you, and I know how valuable uh, a program it is. But uh, other than, than that. Yeah, well, there's, there's 100 ways to simulate it. You've been in mastermind groups for years. A mastermind group does that same thing, that there are morning pages where you can do it by yourself. There's the idea that you can figure out. How, one of my favorite uh, paths is start a blog under an assumed name and blog every day. There's zero fallout from this. No one will know it's you. If no one reads it, if everyone reads it, it doesn't matter. But if you write every day in public, things will happen. Your brain will start to behave a different way. So all of this goes to this core idea, which is we are hiding. And the reason we're hiding is because we got taught to hide by the mechanistic managers who want us to only focus on quality. I also promised a minute ago to talk about wabi-sabi. So wabi-sabi is um, sort of a Japanese term. It's the confluence of two words, first appeared in English, um, a, a guy uh, named, I think, Leonard Corrin wrote a book taking wabi plus sabi. And wabi-sabi is best defined as the pain and beauty of wear, tear, and age. So an old catcher's mitt has wabi-sabi. A new one is a manufactured item. That when you think about your favorite coffee mug, when you think about the route you take going two blocks out of your way to walk to a certain coffee shop because there's someone there who will engage with you in a different way, it is the opposite of Six Sigma perfect. And so early in the evolution of the Mac or the iPhone, there was digital wabi-sabi in it. There were things that hadn't, kinks that hadn't been polished out. And those were adorable and made us, you know, like the, the, the 
there was the moo cow the the i can't remember what she called it in the original mac was half a cow half a dog when you hit the printer window that's been replaced by an anonymous icon now what we seek to do in our lives is consume things with wabi-sabi touch things with wabi-sabi live with wabi-sabi and thus when we get to create them it is part of what it means to be human and you're sitting in my office. I love my bookshelves. I think you love them too. There's a patina to them. And I could clean them out and get rid of all the books I haven't read in 15 years, but then some of the wabi-sabi of my life would be destroyed. Yeah, this is one of the things, um, like a, I've read Marie Kondo and I get it. I get the idea of um, unburdening and getting rid of stuff. But then there's also something about these things in, We've imbued stuff it, 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 with a kind of magic, and uh, I don't. I, for me, that's not a bad thing necessarily. When you said the coffee mug, I flashed on exactly the coffee mug that means the most to me. And it's an odd one, and um, Amy wants to throw it throw it out because it represents. Uh, I got it. I don't. I don't hold back on this show. I, I got this one mug when I did WTF with Marin and Marin was really edgy and tried to come at me on his show early on. This is before yeah. I had the TV show. It was a very unsettling uh, hour on his show. He, I'm very disappointed in the way he handled himself, actually. It, yeah, well, thank you for saying that, but it's, it's, it's fine. And, and it's just Mark. Be, it is just who Mark is in a way. And I, you know, I think I wouldn't have a podcast if it weren't for Mark. And that's why... The mug meant a lot to me that I sure. did this podcast. He came on it. I went and did his. I drink out of that coffee mug all the time <laughs> because I survived that thing. Um, more people started listening to this. It was, um, I was, we were like working on billions as I did it. I was very churned up and in a strange place when I did his show. But that mug and this mug from the coffee shop I go to late at night in the saddest year of college. I still have one from The Tasty in Cambridge. Uh, and that's not, I didn't go to Harvard. I'm not doing the, hey, I was at college in Cambridge thing. You went to the school for people who don't get into Harvard. Uh, yeah, I didn't even apply, Seth. You might have applied. Did you even apply, did you? Uh, I gave a talk at the Harvard Club four days ago, and uh, <laughs> the projector broke in the middle, and I used the downtime to rant for about five minutes about how Harvard has always had a grudge against me. Right, because you mean because the thing broke? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but... Um, but the point of, of it is you're, you're, you're right about wabi-sabi. You're right about that kind of magic that's in certain things. But you said a second ago, and I know it relates to this exactly, that these managers only want a focus on quality. But can you talk a little bit about the way you're using the word quality? Right. Because you're not using it in a Buddhist sense. That's right. So, uh, like the Dun Colored Mare story, which is my other favorite Salinger thing, the, the guy is sent out, uh, a master uh, sends out, someone he says is the best at picking horses. And the guy comes back and he's found a black stallion. And then um, the assistant to the master goes and looks and comes back and reports, you said this guy was a genius, but that's not a black stallion, it's a Dun Colored Mare. And the master says, wow, he's gotten that good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that he could see the black stallion inside the exactly. dun-colored mare. You're not talking about that kind of quality. No, I'm, I'm not. The word, so what are you talking about? Uh, I'm not sure the word quality means what you think it does. 
the word quality has a very specific meaning. And if you want to use a word, you should use what it means. And it has been defined by Phil Crosby and Edwards Deming. And what it means is meeting specification, period. So it is possible to make a two-cent match in a matchbook that is of the highest possible quality because it lights the way it's supposed to light with the residue it's supposed to make at the cost it's supposed to make it, period. That's what quality is. So when Edwards Deming figured this out, he went to the car companies in the United States, this is in the 50s, and said, your cars have lousy quality. And they did because the tolerances of the parts were too wide. So everything just sort of barely fit together. They kicked him out. They said, we don't want to talk to you. And he went to Japan. And the highest award a manufacturer in Japan can win is the Edwards Deming Medal. And what Edwards Deming nice. did was create a level of quality in car manufacturing in Japan where their tolerances were 10 times better than the tolerances. And that's why a Toyota Corolla for $7,000 in 1984 was better in quality than a Rolls Royce because it was because it met spec. Now, there are all these other words we can talk about that talk about our feelings or whether something is remarkable, but that's not what quality means. And an Hermes Birkin bag is not of high quality. It's actually very low quality. It's merely expensive because every time you buy a Birkin bag, it's different than the other Birkin bags because it has wabi-sabi. It doesn't have quality. And can you try and create something with wabi-sabi? Or is it that you're just trying to create something that has enough of you in it, enough of what's real in you in it, that it isn't merely quality? So a simple example is a couple years ago, content marketing, BuzzFeed, clickbait all started to catch on. And there became the rule of the, you know, the 50 things you do to write an article on the internet. So if quality is measured by... How fast can you write it and how many clicks do you get? That's what you end up with. My blog, your writing on Twitter, these, these are low quality items in that they are us, they are real, they have a patina, and they're unpredictable. So yes, you do it on purpose. And so when I hand a book, when I used to write books, I'd hand it to an editor and she would work to make it higher quality. And I would have to take out everything she did because semicolons may be correct, but I don't use semicolons, so therefore it wouldn't sound like me. So even though the quality went up, my need to create something wasn't being satisfied. Your next collection of blog posts has to be called Low Quality Items. There you go. Has to be Low Quality Items. That is, because <laughs> that's so brilliant. All right, I have one question for all of the I'm going to listen to a podcast to help me fall asleep people. Are you struggling to get some shut-eye? I hate when I'm struggling to get shut-eye. I hate it when I can't fall asleep. Listen, if you answered yes, you're in luck because we have a great tip for how you can zonk out more easily. Mattress Firm, America's neighborhood mattress store, lets your budget stretch further when you're looking for ways to improve your sleep. They are more than mattress experts. They have the whole package that helps you transform your mattress into a bed from adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor. They have you covered, literally and figuratively. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening right now as I read this sentence to you. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection and a 120-night low price guarantee so you know you paid the perfect price. Look, I value my sleep because uh, I, I have limited time 
I'm a writer, primarily, uh, storyteller. And if I am sleepy, if I haven't gotten enough sleep, I find it really hard to stay focused and concentrate. But when I have a good night's sleep, it becomes much, much easier. Again, go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to learn how your sleeping could be monumentally improved. I want to switch gear. I, I, I wrote something down and I, it's, it's not something that um, we were going to go ahead and talk about. But I'm thinking about the ways in which people get stirred up to create this. And this is, I'm, I'm going to verge into the personal here. I'm going to use some personal knowledge, but not, not like biographical personal knowledge. Please do. Which is, I, of late, have been thinking about reading the reading of fiction and how it has... Uh, smart people often... Smart people outside of the arts rarely give fiction books to people when they're trying to move them forward. You and I can talk about the 10 yeah. books we give out. Sure. And you look at Tim Ferriss's book, what book do you think everyone should read? Yeah. Very little fiction. Um, and I know you don't really read a lot of fiction anymore because it stirs you up too much. This is the biograph. This is the sort of personal information that I have. But it's your fifth time on the show. Fuck it. I'm going to just it's good. You know, do it. But it, in it, do you think that it serves you somehow in the pursuit of this, of, of creating original work to resist stuff that has that heavy an impact on mm-hmm. you? So Neil Gaiman, uh, has a great remedy for writer's block. He forces himself to get extraordinarily bored. And if he gets bored enough, he, the only way to entertain himself is to write. So what I have found is when I feel like I've run out of my thread and I also don't have an overwhelming noise in my head, the next thing appears. It's not a muse. It's just always quiet when it begins and if there's noise in my head I can't hear it and so I can go rescue it and bring it to the surface but if I see a thrilling movie or I get engaged in uh, a work of fiction that's deep and troubling there's a noise in my head and sometimes it's thrilling like going on a roller coaster but other times I miss too much that other feeling I get, which is being present with my ability to create something. I don't believe I have a gift. I'm really sure I don't have a gift. I think I have a practice. And I've taught people the practice who didn't think they had the gift. So therefore, I believe it is transferable. Maybe it's more work for some people than others. But I'd rather spend time doing that than spend time being entertained. So, yeah, that I... I understand that, and I uh, partially agree with it when you're talking about being merely entertained. Do you feel, though, that truly great fiction, truly great fictional works can get so deep that in the process of sort of getting rid of them, you will get to the next great notion or idea as a result of the intermingling that happens because I think I do so when I think about fiction I think about two kinds of fiction I am uh, less than I used to be but a pop culture junkie in the sense that I really like to know Alfred's last name from Batman I'd like to know 
you know, I saw memento. Memento was really important, and I can now reference it in a conversation. Then there's the other service of fiction, which is engaging with a piece of fiction as if no one else will ever or has ever seen it. And that experience, I can count moments in my life when it changed me, for sure. Um, right now, I'm not looking to be changed, and that will shift as I get older. But I'm in this plateau right now where I'm not sure how long I can be really comfortable with the creative thing that I've got right now. And I don't want to waste some of those moments by going on that other roller coaster. What do you mean you're not sure how long you'll be comfortable? Well, so I've done these public sessions where I'll answer questions for seven or eight hours. And I think I'm better at it than most people. It's thrilling. You're stunningly good it's, at it's it. It's yeah. exhausting. I can't do it as well as I used to. I can't keep it up. And so I have to let part of that go, right? That when I look at a book like Lynchpin, I don't think I could have written Lynchpin today. I don't think I have that. I can't put the effort in to find that thread again. And so because this is the thing I love, I don't want to waste the limited number of times I get to do it. How do you define the thing you love? What is the thing you love? Well, there are many things I love, but this thing that I love is going from a blank sheet of paper to a piece of paper that has something on it that either I invented or I think I invented. And it could be a concept that's really, really big, like commercial email. If you got commercial email, it's because I helped invent it. Or it could be something trivial, like a blog post from five weeks ago, or you know, when you and I talked about buzzer management. I think I said buzzer management in that those two words in a row for the first time that I'd ever heard. And it gave me a lot of joy. And I don't care how many people read the blog post. I just know that when I wrote it, I had said something that I needed to hear myself say. And if I run into someone on the street and they tell me that too, that's even better. But it's interesting. I've written 7,100 blog posts and not one of them has won the internet. I have never written a blog post that was a home run. Not one. You, you wrote one the other day. And this isn't the one you think I'm going to bring up. But you wrote one the other day that I've now quoted every day since. And every person I've said it to has had that blown back expression like from that commercial for the speakers when we were kids. Max L. Max L. Yeah. For the tape, for Max L tape. Yeah. The guy in the chair. And I want to spend a little time having you go further with it. Because if you were still in the book writing mode, I would... I would have you, uh, I would say you should write the book, but you wrote a post recently where you talked about the difference between a choice and a decision. Mm -hmm. And I have to say it might, it, it might be the thing that you're remembered for other than, um, codifying other than the no, idea other of tribes, you. other than the, the concept of tribes, which, uh, was proven out in a horrible way this year. But, um, can you talk a little because I I we were I was in even a restaurant the other day and someone was really stressing out and I said this is a choice not a decision and just make a choice it doesn't matter you'll know when you have to make a decision and I think this all ties into the excellence question too. yeah exactly I think it's all one thing it goes right to the heart of ambition and excellence and quality and all of it because it's about one of the ways in which we distract ourselves from doing the work is by thinking that we have to make a decision about who we are, what we're doing, 
and who's going to like our work and why we're, we're all these things, many of which are just choices. So can you talk about that? Please? Sure. I'll, I'll do my best to bring it back to life. So decisions are a very big deal. Decisions uh, are fraught with uncertainty, but if we make a good decision, it will have a significant value on us and other people going forward. So we resist making decisions. We avoid making decisions. You can find this in all throughout behavioral economics, which where should you put your 401k? Almost everyone checks no box whatsoever. So that way they won't be responsible. But what we do to pretend that we are independent actors is we make choices. That we tell ourselves are decisions. Right. Exactly. And a choice is A or B, vanilla or chocolate, right? So if you go to an ice cream stand that has 33 flavors, the extra 29 flavors that are on the menu, you could ignore them. You're still going to have just as much fun at Morgan Stern's buying this ice cream or that ice cream. All that extra noise feels like a decision that you're going to be responsible for that has giant pluses or minuses. It's just a choice. And if you are using up your decision cycles on choices, well, it's no wonder you're having trouble making decisions because you're busy spending all this time thinking your choices are what matters. So here's what I propose. For a day or a week or an hour, every time a choice presents itself, just pick the one that comes first in alphabetical order. Just fine, done. Because it's not going to have a material impact on your life. And what will happen is decision fatigue will go away. And you're now going to have to make a real decision. A real decision of, should you quit your job? A real decision of, what is your contribution to your family this month? Those things we avoid like the plague. And we've replaced it, thanks to marketers and capitalism, with this endless buffet of choices. And I think that's a mistake. Right. Spending uh, 10 weekends deciding whether to buy a Ford or Chevy truck. Yeah, exactly. Because in Edmonds, one in certain categories is a quarter point higher than the other. That You could spend 10 Saturdays. Oh, yeah. 10 Saturdays in a row where you could actually make the decision not to do that at all. But you could say to yourself, oh, I'm going to buy the cheaper one or I'm going to buy the one rated higher in safety. You could pick one thing, make right. the decision quickly, know that... Um, you're going to move, you know, move on uh, unless by the way, you're a car freak. And then, then maybe it is fun. For maybe you, for you, it for is it. Yeah. A, a decision, but it stops you in a way from grappling with the real stuff. It's in the, in the world. And I have found just even in the last couple of weeks, since you wrote that post or the last 10 days, since you wrote the post, just going, uh, making choices. It's been incredibly helpful helpful to me did you get like a decent like i know you don't check stats it's not about stats did you test that idea out at all on people before you wrote it no you just wrote it yeah it's almost 99 percent of the time is what i do i just wrote it now the thing that's interesting is uh i think people who work with detail in their life will have trouble getting from which kind of car to there are three things the character could say in the second scene. All of them are pretty good. I'm just going to pick one and move on. Versus my job is to make a decision about which of these three things, and I'm going to spend an enormous number of cycles on it. So there's a story told about Charles Revson, the father of Revlon, 
he used to go to the press okay and the printer was in Tuckahoe. I was at his print shop years and years ago. And the way a press okay works before digital printing. The way what works? Press okay. In digital, before digital printing, the act of printing posters was analog. You could turn a little dial and it'd be a little more orange, a little bit more red. And the client would show up at the printer while the press is running and say that one. And then, you... and then they would print more of it. And it's very expensive because they have to throw out. You can't just print one sheet. It's not like an HP. It's so Charles Revson would show up. It was always 11 o'clock at night because that's when it's finally ready for him to look. And he would say, nope, nope, nope. And he'd sit there for an hour making choice slash decision about the poster because his posture was we sell dreams and the color on this poster matters more than anything. Well, finally, the guys in the print room had had enough. So he came and they brought him the 45th print one, which was the first one. And he said, fine, this is what I've been looking for all along, finally. And it proved to them that he was actually futzing around with choices that didn't actually mean anything because the first one was good enough. Yeah, learning the diff learning which things matter exactly. is very hard. Exactly. When I was young, the first time I was in a recording, I'd never, I don't know, I never told you the story. I'm pretty sure I've never told it on a podcast. I'm 99.9% sure. Um, if I did, it would have been in the episode with my friend Peter Zizzo because it happened to the two of us, which is we were young and going to make uh, a demo tape. Peter had this band I was producing and we went to the studio and the first thing you do in the studio is you, you back then, you get drum sound. You get the sound you want on the snare drum. And he and I had both watched lots of recording sessions, had heard about the way this was done, knew this was a crucial thing, had read thousands of interviews where people talked about getting the drum sound. In fact, if you watch the Eagles documentary, Don Henley like fired a, a producer because the guy wouldn't let him mic the drums the way that he, he wanted. And uh, we went, and this engineer, his name was Marshall, a recording engineer, and Marshall was a great guy, and he was like, all right, let's put the snare up, and you hit the snare, and it goes, you know, and uh, you say, oh, that, that's good. Can we get a little more, can it be crisper? You know, a little, and it's like, and we tweak, you know, and then you say, like, it's decent. No, anyway, we tweak the drum sound for, I'm not going to exaggerate, nine hours. And at the end of which, Marshall said, one second, can we try this? And he pushed two quick buttons and he hit the snare and we went, that's it. And he said, that's flat. That's where we started. And it was a great lesson um, in exactly th this point, which is the need to convince yourself you're making. Right. So here's the dangerous part. The dangerous part is... You can end up with banality if you merely accept flat every time. Yes. So part of going we then back did to some our, work from flat to get it to good. We're going full circle to you know half an hour ago, which is that if our work is to create wabi sabi and human, then we're gonna need to make some choices that feel like decisions because it's the texture of it. My point is this: that by not worrying about font choice in the books that I've published, I forced myself to have to worry about some other innovation I was going to bring to the table because I didn't expend my creative energy saying, we're going to stop using Jansen text and switch to Adobe Garamond Premiere Pro 
It's like the typeface doesn't matter. There's no correlation between typeface and book impact. It's easy to prove. Yeah, and it also depends on the kind of work you're trying to create yes. in the moment you're trying to create it. So uh, the thing about the lines of dialogue, for me, I'm happy to spend, I get great joy yeah. out of really grinding on what that line of dialogue, that exchange should be. Right. And in fact, I will grind on that till we're standing on set. We've already table read it, rehearsed it, rewritten it. We're about to shoot. We do it one more time. And if it's not singing, I will absolutely continue to try to make it better be because that is the idea and the thing you're talked of started with that's the closest way to get the thing to be the idealized version that was in my head right when i started and so that's worth chasing down for me because when it clicks in i can have a happy day if the then i can feel like i accomplished right or go one step further the espresso machine in the offices of Axe Capital, the viewer isn't going to know how many people spent how many hours making sure it was there. That's right. You didn't just pick the regular kind because the texture of what you have to sell on the screen is, really, is yep. expressed, right? And that's what my point is, is that we need to get the noise out of our head about fear and instead turn it into a noise about opportunity. And so much of it has to do with what you, how... I guess what I'm trying to understand in terms of how to help people figure it out for themselves is a, a buddy of mine runs a TV show and he and I were talking and I was at a sound mix. I always go to the sound, David and I always go to the sound mixes because for our show, um, the things about the, this, the, um, how the music lays in and the texture of the sound really matters to us. And a, my, my friend was said, said to me, he happened to call me and I was at the mix and he goes, where are you? I said, the sound mix. And he said, I haven't gone to a sound mix in three years. And I said, why? And he said, I don't think one more person watches my show for the sound mix. They watch my show because of these action elements or whatever the thing was. So I have to be really on top of that. And I had to give something, I had to right. let something go. Exactly. And so I let that go. Neither one of us is right. Right. But, but trying, to, if he, trying to do all of it would have crippled my friend. Exactly. So he had to let it go and he's, a, he's happy and really great at his job. People love the show he makes. I'm lucky that some people like the show that I make. Right. But we approach. Right. So now we get to honing in on this magical new idea for today of design thinking. And design thinking is something that you must adopt if you're not going to have a job where you make something of quality. Right. Because design thinking is that you are the manager of your day. You are the manager of what you're about to create. You must ask yourself the following questions. Who's it for? What's it for? How do I know if it's working? And that's what your friend is talking about with the sound mix is the design thinking is I am building a product for people who aren't going to notice the sound mix. So to put effort into that instead of this is bad design. Right. I mean, he has professionals doing the sound. But like his I, effort. Right? right, his effort. There are, his point is I have top quality, top, top quality technical professionals right. doing the sound mix. Whatever little bit I'm going to add to it. Right for my audience isn't gonna matter. Right, so I wrote a blog post 12 years ago that I feel like I wrote yesterday about what I eat for breakfast. And I used to eat this every single day. And it's about going to understand why is it that when I go to a hotel and pay $19 for an egg white omelet, it's terrible. Well, they say, uh, we could use a high BTU gas stove, but all we have is this little butane thing. Would that be okay? 
well, yeah, I guess. We could use a cast iron skillet, but cast iron skillets are harder to clean. We're going to use this steel one. Would that be okay? Well, I guess. Well, I know you wanted us to use fresh herbs, but fresh herbs are a pain in the neck for us to bring to the restaurant every day. Is it okay if we just sprinkle it? I guess. And we could use the olive oil that you use. But, and when you go down the nine compromises, their efficiency goes way up as managers. But their ability to design and deliver something that has character and humanity to it is gone. And as an, at the end result is they didn't serve me a $19 omelet. They served me a $2 omelet. They charged me $19 for it. But I know that at home, because I've built up a practice and tools to do my practice, I don't have to make new choices every time about my mise en place, the stuff I'm using. I can focus on, oh, this would be interesting, and I can take more risks because I've established a palette of tools and experience as a designer that lets me deliver a thing that I can be proud of. That all makes total sense to me. The, I, the thing I'm, um, I'm thinking about this thing of you not reading fiction. <laughs> I'm glad I can give you a quest now and then. Because in a way, it, it strikes me because you're someone who's so actualized in all these ways and so productive. But if something has the power to affect you that way and stir things up that way, is it possible you're, you would, as scary as it is to feel like things would be in your head and you might not do the work, is it possible that getting stirred up like that could create an even better omelet? Oh yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm a hypocrite of the highest order. And there's all these things that I don't do or do do that keeps me from accomplishing the things I say I wish I could do more of. And, you know, I read more fiction than you think. I'm less likely to go to movies because I find they go straight to my amygdala and rewire me for days to come. But yeah, I'm not even close. If, my, if I was going to sacrifice more, I could create more creative work. I could change more people. I could contribute more. But at some level, I'm selfishly not sacrificing in service of that because it's also nice to be able to live a day with a smile on my face. So this is a really crucial thing that you just said because people beat themselves up for not doing more all the time. They, in fact, it stops them from doing anything sometimes. That's right. And the fact that you who do so much and change so many people walk around with this kind of knowledge that I could be doing more, it, I may not be, because what you're... I, um, I may not actually be um, activated at the highest possible level I could be creatively. That stops everybody, Seth. But it somehow doesn't stop you. And that's inspiring. You know, that is an inspiring thing because that allows you to chase excellence within your limited capability at the moment. Yeah, well, we all have a limited capability. Yes. And we're all dealing yes. with our own thing that gets in, our, in the way of fear. Yeah. Or that, that plays no. with the fear. No, so the, the fear, that's yeah, exactly, yes. Exactly. So, you know, I saw the work of a contractor the other day, and he's working on a commercial building. He always 
gets into this mode toward the end where Herculean effort is necessary to finish the job. And if you've been a contractor for 50 years, like at some point you should see that there's a pattern there. And so I decided a long time ago that that's very seductive to have the charrette at the end, the race, the, I'm never going to do that. I just decided it's off limits. If it's necessary to do that, the thing's not going to ship. Bad planning on my part. Get better at planning. Don't get better at emergencies. And those are the kinds of decisions a professional needs to don't make. Need adrenal- don't, you're saying don't need adrenaline. Yeah, because I will ship it and say, I'm proud of this, but I won't say, and I burned my candle at both ends and died a little bit to make it. I thought of two things that I'm going to recommend to people uh, off of what you just said. They both have to do with contractors in a certain way, contractors. Uh, and that is go find Gary Gullman's uh, stand-up routine. I think he did it on Conan about uh, state abbreviations, a documentary about state abbreviations. <laughs> so it's funny. an incredibly great seven minutes of stand-up comedy. And also there's a short story by a guy named Mark Helprin. Seth, you'd be, you'd be out of commission for a week if you read it. It's called... Monday, not Mark Halperin, the political journalist um, uh, who's lately been in the news for other things. Mark Halperin, the story is called Monday and it is about a contractor, uh, not a contractor at all like the one okay. uh, Seth is talking about. And um, shoot, Seth, there's so much more that I felt like we could get to. But um, how will we have episode six if we get it all done in episode five? Hey, Seth, but before we we finish... Uh, I just wanted to, you know, you, you've been very involved, not only in Alt-NBA, and your blog, which people can find at SethGodin.com. Click on my head. They can click on your head and find the blog. Uh, they can find information about Alt-NBA that way. Um, but you've been very involved in helping a pretty remarkable person get some really important work out there. And I, I just want to give you a second to talk about it. Well, uh Alex Peck, my creative director, and I spent the last six months working every day to publish a book by a woman named Catherine Hoke, and the book is called A Second Chance. It comes out at the end of February, and it's about her work in forgiveness and understanding how raw a deal we've created for the millions of people we've put in prison, and that her summary is, what if you were known for the worst thing you ever did? What if that's all you were known for? Most of us could not walk around the world like that, but we insist that everyone who's been through prison walk around the world that way. Her book is extraordinary, and uh, they recorded the audio book last week, and every single person in the recording studio was crying while she was reading the book. Well, that'll stir you up, folks. So uh, check out that book and find Seth if you want to email me and tell me that I talked too much in this podcast. You did not talk too much. I'll but take I will it. tell you something. My new podcast comes out in a few weeks, and episode 10 is me arguing with you, and you're not even on the podcast. This seems unfair. There you go. It That's seems why unfair. everyone needs their own podcast. You can find me at the moment, your podcast. I was wondering if I could mention your podcast. You let me hear the first episode, and it's great. TheMomentBK at gmail.com. If you want to email me, I am at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. The great Seth Godin my dear friend and uh, world champion podcast guest. Thanks, man. Thank you. 